This is Mia Ashton for Public, and I'm joined today by Helen Joyce. Helen is a former editor at The Economist and the current director of advocacy for Sex Matters, a UK-based nonprofit that campaigns to promote clarity about sex in public policy, law, and culture. Helen is also the author of the book Trends, When Ideology Meets Reality, which has now undergone a, a name change and is called Trends, Gender Identity and the New Battle for Women's Rights. It's a book that examines the impact of gender identity, ideology and modern trans activism on women, children and wider society. So welcome, Helen. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Now, I personally, I have read your book, and it is the book that I recommend above all others. Many, there have been several books now written on this subject, and yours is the one that I recommend above any other because you managed to cover the entire issue of this, this gender madness it, with such precision and clarity. So first of all, what, what drew you to this topic? So I was working as a staff journalist at The Economist for quite a long time. I started there in 2005 and did various jobs, among them moving to Brazil for a while and covering education. And in around 2017, I was editing a short section of the paper that's called the International Section, which is not the whole foreign coverage. They each you know, have, set, have their own geographical regions. It's a section that runs one long read a week on something that um, crosses borders. And uh, in a sort of fateful day, a senior commissioning editor of the paper sat down next to me at lunch one day and said, uh, kids keep coming home from school and saying such and such is trans. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? And I said, no, I'd never heard of any such thing, but I'd look into it and try and find an author. And that was a failure. I just wasn't able to find somebody who wrote something I thought was sensible because I was trying to find, you know, young people who knew more about this and were familiar with this phenomenon. And then they, you know, these people write nonsense because they talk about sex as something that's, uh, you know, an identity and not actually a material reality. And so I was completely shocked by that. I mean, I, I have a degree, I have a PhD, actually, but it's in mathematics, and it was a long time ago. So I just had, I'd never heard of Judith Butler, I'd never heard of queer theory, I had no idea what any of this stuff was, you know, I was interested in evolutionary biology. And, you know, I'd read Richard Dawkins and other popularizers of evolutionary science. And I was just genuinely shocked to find out that there was such a strange, unscientific, uh, anti-factual belief system that appeared to be, um, you know, really gaining sway. And I didn't really at the time understand how serious it was. You know, I, I, I knew it was troublesome to me. A few things troubled me about it. And one was that you weren't meant to talk about it. That was clear straight away. You know, when I asked questions, people would tell me off for using the wrong words or say that they weren't willing to talk to me if I talked to another particular person. And, you know, by that time, I was a pretty experienced correspondent and I'd worked in difficult places and this is not the normal way that people act. Um, so I knew that there was something up. And also the sort of sheer illogicality of it, like at the centre of it, is this claim, trans women are women. And that's a circular definition. That's saying that woman is anyone who says they're a woman, which doesn't tell you anything about what a woman is. So I knew there was something wrong, but I just thought I was missing something. And it kind of went on like that for about a year. And we did end up running a piece that I wrote. Um, and I think it mostly got it right, but it wasn't great. And I kept being bothered by it. And then I think it was 
probably in the summer of 2018 or late 2018, I did what everyone always says, go down the rabbit hole. Everyone uses this expression. You know, I suddenly hit the point where I realized that people weren't talking in a a metaphorical way. Like that when they said things like that, you know, trans women who were attracted to women were lesbians. And I mean, by this time, you know, I was able to keep the words clear in my head and I can visualize a man because a trans woman is a type of man. And so these people are saying that a man can be a lesbian. And I thought, well, they either haven't thought it through or they they mean lesbian in some sort of social sense. They don't actually mean that lesbians are going to want to sleep with this person. And then I realized they did. They really meant it. And that you'd get kicked out of LGBT spaces if you were to say, look, you know, not for relationship purposes. Like, I'll treat you as a woman, but I'm not going to go to bed with you. And so I went down the rabbit hole and realized that actually this concept of sex, meaning male, female, it's such a fundamental concept in our society because we are actually mammals. And it doesn't appear in many laws, but the ones that appears in all matter, and it's sex that matters in those laws. They're things to do with the biological reality of the fact that it's women who have babies, women who can get raped, men who are stronger, men who are more violent. And so destabilizing this core word really opened up a lot of problems. And of course, you know, whenever you open up problems like this, you open it up for the weakest people or the most vulnerable people. So it matters least for heterosexual men, and it matters for women, it matters for gay people, and it matters for children when you destabilize core meanings like this. And and then I decided I had to write a book about it when I met my first detransitioners. So kids who had... um, been misled in their teens into thinking that their discomfort with their sexed bodies meant that they were trans and grown-ups instead of saying to them you know look sweetheart teen years can be tough you know this particular group they were all lesbian young women you know gay people often have a harder time in their teens working out who they are and instead of being given good advice and support by adults they were misled to the extent for some of them of having their sexual organs removed so one girl in particular really moved me. She was 21 when she had her hysterectomy and she was now 23 and, you know, really felt that she had been grotesquely misled in the most horrific ways. And that night I thought, right, I've got to write a book about this. You know, I hadn't been worried about getting attacked about it. I'd been worried that I just wasn't the right person. You know, I was the finance editor of The Economist by this point. So it was a bit of a stretch but I thought, well, I can wait for someone else to do it or I can do it myself. So that's the way I got into this. I I think um, many of us had a similar beginning in the, a, a similar introduction to this issue. I myself went through the same thing of something didn't seem right. I thought we were all just pretending that trans women are women just to be kind and to make life easier for these men. And then it was really the day that I realized that, no, we were actually supposed to believe that they really are literally women and therefore lesbians. Uh, That was when it all started to not make much sense. And then the same thing, as soon as I realized what was happening to children, and I discovered detransition as everything that then it, my life went in a different way. Um, you mentioned that you you have a PhD in mathematics. Is that right? That's right. Yes. From a long time ago. I mean, I got my PhD in 1995. So we're approaching 30 years ago. So please don't try and make me do any sums. <laughs> no, I won't. But I, you see, it might seem unlikely that someone, a mathematician would, would find themselves 
here in this place writing and speaking on this issue, but I've heard you sort of draw a, a comparison with introducing an illogicality into a system ruins the whole system. Could you could you remind me of that? Certainly. So I think part of the reason, it's already my career has just taken some odd turns. You know, I decided I wanted to be a dancer when I left school. And when that didn't work out, I went and did a maths degree. And, you know, then I moved into public understanding of maths and from that into journalism. So, you know, to me, it doesn't seem, it just seems like another part of my episodic life. I think um, one thing that having a PhD in mathematics does for you is it makes you very intellectually confident, possibly unfairly so, because of course not everything is mathematics. But it does mean that it's harder to shame me into thinking I don't know what I'm talking about. So people try that all the time on this issue. They say, you know, why is Helen Joyce writing about this when she doesn't have a PhD in endocrinology or she hasn't read, you know, she's not got not a queer theorist or something. Well, I don't need to be a queer theorist or an endocrinologist to know that there are two sexes. I mean, bloody hell, like, you know, but but it does shame people into silence. People think like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm not allowed to speak on this. I'm not a special person. I don't have a special uh, job. Well, a journalist for a start is somebody who has to get up to speed pretty damn quickly on all sorts of things. But also it does give you a sort of a thing to say, well, I have a PhD in mathematics, actually. And I'm not saying I go around saying that all the time, but I do recognize that it doesn't worry me that people think that I don't have the qualifications. And then the second thing is that the sort of mathematics that I did was highly, highly theoretical. My PhD was in infinite dimensional spaces and it was a proof by contradiction. It was showing that a particular construct did not have a particular property. So it was absolutely unapplied and it was just totally about, um, you know, how systems work and what, what starting in the wrong place does. So the way a proof by contradiction works, if anyone doesn't know, is you start with assuming that the thing you want to prove is true. So you say, suppose such and such. And then you get you, you make a series of logical steps. So you say, therefore, 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 and you get to a point of a falsehood. And at that falsehood, you say, ah, okay, my starting point can't have been right because I know all my deductions in between were right. Therefore, the thing I assumed must be false. And that's exactly what trans women or women is like. If trans women are women, then a male can be a lesbian. Children can be born in the wrong body. It can be right to sterilise a child before she or he has even you know, started to be fertile, started to understand their own sexuality. You know, A lot of things can be right that are clearly wrong. It can be right to send a rapist to women's jails. It can be right to let men compete in women's sports. All those things are proofs by contradiction, and they tell you that the starting point, that men can be women, is false. And the other way that I often think about this in mathematical terms is all of mathematics, everything that we know, and lots of things that we don't know, but hopefully we will discover uh, by, by clever people proving theorems, it's all interconnected. In a way, mathematics is all already there. It's, it's just that we haven't noticed yet. Like I certainly felt when I proved the central result in my PhD that I had looked around and seen something. You know, it was a, It's what's called a construction. I constructed a space and showed that in that space... The, theory, the, the thing that I'd started by assuming to be true was false. So it was a constructive proof, but it didn't feel like I'd made something. It felt like I'd looked around and seen something I hadn't noticed before. So it's all there and it's all interconnected and you can't change one little bit of it and think that won't ripple out through the system. 
So you might like to say, you know, well, this is only a little result over here. It's not a very important one. We don't use it for anything. So suppose we say that it's false. Suppose we say just over here, one can be zero. Well, that ruins all of mathematics because it's all connected. So you remember from school that you can do the same thing to both sides of an equation. You probably remember being told that at some point you can subtract or add or multiply or divide by the same thing on both sides of an equation and you still get a true equation. So if you start with zero equals one, you can get any equation. Everything is true. You just changed one little three word equation and the whole of mathematics broke. And I sort of feel like we're doing the same thing now with law because we have destabilized this core term. And of course, there are laws that have no mention at all of sex and are not connected with the definition of sex at all. So there's a firewall between those and the fact that we screwed up the definition of sex. But every law, every regulation, every societal pattern, every convention that relies on us recognising tacitly or explicitly that there are two sexes, we've screwed them all up. And that includes important things like child safeguarding. So, yeah, we've broken a system that actually hung together by introducing a falsehood. Yes, yes. We, I mean, the, in Canada, we have gender identity protected as well as sex. And you simply can't do that in exactly. law. You can exactly. only protect one or the other. And no one seems to have noticed that you can't do both. It's, it's very strange. And so I suppose that, you know, like I, I actually spent 11 years as an academic mathematician. I did a four year degree, then a one year master's, then a three year PhD, and then three years postdoc. And 11 years was maybe a long time to take to get to the point that I've really felt I could confidently state that you cannot say the same thing is equal to two different things. <laughs> but, you know, I really am confident in that. <laughs> so I don't advise everyone going off and spending 11 years doing mathematics, but you can just take it from me. You can't we'll say... We'll take your word for it. Yeah, you can't say you can define women both by sex and by gender identity. You can't do it. You yeah. actually can't do it by gender identity because it's not a, a proper definition. It's not, it's not what mathematicians call well-defined. No, it's not. I've never, I've never heard a good definition of gender identity. And I've but e- but any... even if it was, even if it was well defined, you can't define the same thing in two different ways that are actually put different people inside and outside the tent. Yes. Now, so you you did obviously an awful lot of research for your book. What what was what were some of the most surprising? It's all very shocking and surprising, and it's quite the journey when you when you plunge into this, but what would you say was the most shocking thing that you learned? It's hard to answer that because I still live in a state of permanent bogglement at it all. It it, it is just surreal. I I really feel like I fell down Alice's, you know, trip to Wonderland, or is it through, it is is Alice in Wonderland, isn't it, where she falls down the hole? Yeah, because through the looking glass is the other one. I still feel like I'm falling. And... Every day I still see something that just makes me go, you, you know, you must be kidding again. Like every day, every day. I mean, the thing that has made me so sure that I'm not getting something fantastically wrong is the way that this is treated like nothing else. So, you know, when I started out on this, I genuinely didn't think that I was going to be standing out against this ideology. I thought there was something I was missing. I was really genuinely trying to understand. So the early emails that I sent out to people, I, I you know, I didn't have a name on this. I 
uh, was at The Economist, which didn't you know, have a position on this at the time of any sort. And I was sending the same polite emails as I have sent hundreds, maybe thousands of times on absolutely wide ranging topics that just said, hi, I'm a staff journalist at The Economist. Uh, I'm writing an article about... Uh, I can't remember how I put it exactly at the time, but, you know, I've just something quite vague saying I saw your piece about such and such or I thought it was very interesting what you wrote or said about this. You know, I'd love to interview you. And then I'd get emails back saying, you know, I will tell you this only once because you seem like a nice person. But the questions you're asking make you a Nazi. People like you want to put me against the wall and shoot me. You're the sort of people who want to commit genocide. Uh, you know, I, I will, you know, the only acceptable thing to say here is um, Stonewall, who would be a very well-known charity here. And, you know, OK, they've got a bad name in our circles now and they certainly deserve it. But five years ago, I mean, there were saints practically like people, you know, people get they get knighthoods for working at, at the top jobs in Stonewall. Um, you know, they, they blocked me as soon as I asked questions. And I mean, my questions were just, hi, I saw your piece about such and such. Uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'm a bit confused about how you can say sexuality is based on gender identity, because wouldn't that mean that male people could be lesbians and female people could be gay men? Like, which it does mean that. Like, it's not my fault that it means that. It does mean that. And then they blocked me and blocked me on social media. I mean, okay, someone can think, oh, well, it's the notorious Helen Joyce, you know, well-known Nazi anti-Semite or whatever. But this was before anyone thought those things of me, when I genuinely thought that these people were just missing, and I was missing something, they were saying it not clearly enough. So that's the surreal thing. Like every day you wake up and you think, you got to be kidding. This cannot be happening. It's just too mad. It's the maddest thing I've ever seen, ever heard of, ever read, anything so I can't pick out one surprising yeah. thing. The whole thing is mad. <laughs> and it makes it very difficult to talk to people about without sounding mad yourself. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's all gone on so long is that by this point, people are sidling away from you. You know, I had this experience at work when I started to write about this because I was doing a job that was editing the finance section at the time. And my boss, a very nice chap, um, was perfectly happy for me to be working on this in my spare time. But, you know, it was not part of my job. Uh, so this was the second article that I wrote about it, not the first. Um, I had changed jobs in between. And, um, you know, I would go into him and I would say, you won't, you'll never believe this, but they say such and such. And he'd look at me very quizzically and like as if he just didn't think they could. <laughs> and I still remember very early one morning in the, I think it must have been summer 2018. Um, Wednesdays are a very busy day. And he and I would always have got in very early, as would other uh, section editors. Um going into his office and saying, you know, fuck me, you will not believe this one. They seriously believe that heterosexual men can be lesbians if they say they're women. And he looked at me and he was like, no, that can't be. I, I swear to God, they believe this. Uh, you know, so, you know, by this time I had, been, I had brought him on enough of the journey with me. And he and I on, on, on them Thursday mornings, all the section editors before COVID, we would all be in the same room. Um, reading the proofs of our own sections and it's quite fun you know it's very it's very stressful and and concentrated for the first few hours but but by the end it's just the last go rounds of typos and picture caps and so on and so people are starting to chat and you know dribble off and things and that's the point at which you catch up on your emails or you look on social media while you're waiting for some proofs to come back so you know he and I would always have sat beside <laughs> each other at that because he was in charge of the bit of the paper that I was working on and I remember, you know, several times you know, snor snorting with laughter and nudging him and saying, have a look at this and showing him, you know, for example, this extraordinary guide to um, 
still this might be one of the maddest things I've ever read. It was a guide for um, trainees in, I think, psychotherapy, some sort of counselling, like for marriage counselling, actually, it was, I think. And it defined man and woman. And it said, you know, in, in the British context, a woman who is someone who is submissive, subservient, um, you know, passive, and it listed off all these very offensive things. And then it said that women who were autistic or northern are therefore not women. <laughs> well, northern women would have like Irish women as sort of a, you know, a, they would be maybe just, um, you know, more forthright than is average maybe uh-huh. for a southern, like a southeastern English woman. So this was seriously, and I mean, he was saying, no, no, this must be just about the stereotypes. And I was saying, read it. It's in the section that says definitions, <laughs> definition woman, someone who is like this, you know. So, yeah, by this time I had brought him on enough of the journey that he believed me. But if you don't bring people on a bit of the journey, they just think that you're stark raving mad. They really do. I mean, he wasn't wrong. It is all built on stereotypes, but they they, they deny that it is. Absolutely. Um, but then they can't tell you what else it is. No, they can't. I mean, what is it that you feel like if you feel like a woman? I mean, if you're a man, it can't be anything that a woman actually feels like because you're not a woman. The only way to feel like a woman is to be a woman and to have feelings. Like literally right now, I am feeling like a woman just because I am a woman and I'm having feelings. So it must, they must mean something else. They must mean I feel like I think women feel. But yes. I mean, that's external and that can only be your observations of women. And I mean, you can't observe the whole bloody four billion of us or whatever it is. So you're only going on the stereotypes. You're saying, you know, I feel like I'd like it if I wore sexy underwear and... You know, I feel like I'd like it if, you know, I tittered and men, you know, offered to buy me drinks. I don't know what the hell. But anyway, so they must mean that. They must. Um, So you mentioned Stonewall. I think that's a good that's a good opportunity to go into this. Now, there may be there may be some listeners who don't fully understand because we're, we're so used to the the LGBT or the LGBTQ. This is the they come as one group these days. But the LGB found themselves attached to, to the T in recent decades, and the two are are very much in opposition to each other. It's not a it's not a natural marriage. It's a, it's a very strange combination. So, why is it that the LGB and the T are 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 diametrically opposed? Almost, would you say? So I'm old enough that when I was at university in the late 80s and 90s, they were LGB. It was the LGB society. Uh, and that, then I think it was, a, I mean, in my book, I looked for the history of when people started to say LGBT. And it was earlier in America than in the UK. It was around 2006 or so that people started, to, some people started to say LGBT. And the thing is, at the time, you weren't, you know, the, we, we had not reached the point where people thought that anyone could actually change sex. So people were thinking about transsexuals people who had actually undergone a major amount of surgery on their genitals and chests and taken hormones to try to make them look more like the opposite sex. And that's a very tiny number of people. It's always been a very tiny number of people. And they are people who suffer significant discrimination because they don't fit in anywhere. And, you know, in homophobic places, people assume that a man who's wearing a dress and who's clearly a man, you know, they don't care whether he's gay or not. He's, he's clearly up for a bit of, you know, whatever you might call queer bashing or something. So those are people who really did need to find themselves somewhere to be and kind of LGB, you know, if you if you think of LGB as being a anti kind of heteronormativity, it's maybe not as mad as all that to think that that would be their home. 
as a sort of a you know, mutual support system. So I think that at first, one side thought that they were offering, you know, a helping hand and a safe place where you wouldn't get beaten up by, um, you know, by homophobes. But the other side, and of course, actually, a lot of the early transsexuals were massively homophobic. Like if you look back at the writings of the people who are now thought of as transsexual pioneers, you know, they're absolutely ardently trying to explain that they're not gay men. Mm-hmm. They're they're trying to explain that you know really they're women. There's a woman hidden inside them because I mean apparently whatever it is that these people are feeling that is what it feels like. They feel like there's really a woman inside, and um, obviously there can't be. There, there just isn't a way in which there's a sort of a gendered essence that gets trapped in the wrong in the wrong vessel. But that is what it feels like, and they don't want people to think that they're actually gay. But anyway, so that's kind of how it happens socially, and then in American legal campaigning. A really crucial moment was, and I think it was 2007 or so, when the Equal Rights Bill, uh, the Equal Rights Bill, I think it was called, Equal Rights Act, was there had been many attempts to pass an equal rights law in America at the federal level that would protect people on the basis of sexual orientation. And uh, there were two versions of it that were presented to Congress, and one was sexual orientation and the other one was sexual orientation and gender identity. And the fixers and runners and riders in Washington worked out that they had a chance of getting through the one with sexual orientation, but not the one that included gender identity. And so all the lobby groups, in particular the Human Rights Campaign, which was one of the biggest ones, put its weight behind the sexual orientation one only, thinking, let's go for that and we can come back later and protect transsexual people. And they threw their toys out of the pram big time. And, and they picketed the fundraising gala. They um, they swore that they would act diametrically against the HRC forevermore. They said that anyone who acted like a traitor like this, you know, it was it was nothing without us. You were not allowed to campaign for LGB without T. And the human rights campaign capitulated and apologized publicly. And it sort of spread this message in Washington that it was very dangerous to try to do anything for gay people unless you said gay and trans. And didn't co- we didn't copy that here in the UK until 2015. Stonewall was just for LGB until 2015. So in between the two, I think, um, you know, part of it was just kind of fear. And then part of it is this feeling that you get when you move in these progressive spaces where everyone's in charities that are campaigning for the most marginalised and jockeying with other charities that are campaigning for different most marginalised people, that you consider the more marginalised people you can get, the better. Uh, So I think a lot of the campaigners were happy enough to bring in the tea. And then a really crucial moment in all of this was uh, successfully getting gay marriage on the federal books or the national books in so many countries in England in 2013 or the UK in 2013 and in America in 2015 at the federal level. And that took away the main basis on which all the LGB groups had fundraised because the easy thing to fundraise for is a very clear legislative change. It's hard to fundraise for nebulous things like reducing homophobia. People don't open their wallets for it because they know there's always going to be homophobia, which is a depressing thought. Um, you know, you think like, you know, I could spend my entire fortune, like Bill Gates could spend his entire fortune and it wouldn't end homophobia. But you can get gay marriage. And so they... Um, they got gay marriage. And then there was also a generational thing, like all the people who had joined these organisations, even in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, like they got the thing they'd been campaigning for for so long and they wanted to retire. So in came a whole influx of young people who'd been taught bollocks in university degrees and who had no memory whatsoever of what actual homophobia was like, like, you know, the source that gets you killed on the street. And they... um, 
they knew they had to find a new campaign. And ideally something that you can say in, you know, one sentence, four words or less, trans women are women, and a legislative change that you can campaign for, so gender self-ID. And that has proved to be an irresistible formulation for all sorts of organisations that if they'd had any um, dignity or, um, you know, in any way attached to their original uh, motives, it, it would never have happened. Because the thing is that, Yes, okay, trans people and gay people are both transgressing sex to norms. And so in some ways they can be allies. But if you think that acting stereotypically more like a member of the opposite sex makes you the opposite sex, then you are acting very much uh, contra to the interests of gay people. Because gay people, you know, by definition, do the most gender non-conforming thing, namely be attracted to and sleep with people of the same sex. I mean, there is nothing more gender non-conforming that you can do. You can be the famous, you know, cis white male, you know, so you cut your hair, you look like Pete Buttigieg or whatever. But if you go to bed and sleep with another man, you are breaking the most important sex-based rule. And the trans ideology suggests that makes you a woman because you are, you know, you're in the social role of a woman, living as a woman. Like if living as a woman doesn't mean sleeping with men, it doesn't mean anything at all. So yeah, their interests are diametrically opposed and the kids who are the most gender non-conforming, the kids who are most likely to think from their earliest years they don't like the things that are supposed to be done by their sex, are in fact gay kids. Like kids who don't even know they're gay yet, because you normally don't realise really until you're in your teens and you start having sexual urges. But those kids often can look back and say, but that's what, so that's why I like playing with my sister's dolls and I wanted to be... Uh, you know, Cindy, when I went to the party and why I always hated football and all my best friends were girls or, you know, the reverse for a little girl who grows up to be a lesbian. And those are the kids who are being sent off to gender clinics now. That's right. There was the the dark joke at the, ta- the Tavistock that's going to, well, it's undergoing massive change at the moment, will be closed, new regional centres for gender service in England the the dark joke was soon there'll be no gay people left yeah i mean my my version of that is you know i look at a little boy in a dress and i think you do you they look at a little boy in a dress and they think i'll chop his cock off and call him a girl you've reached the end of this episode of the free version of public's podcast to access the full version become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com